0: Welcome to the Christchurch Winston-Salem Podcast. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at Christchurchws.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Well, over the next few weeks, the lectionary texts for the uh, for the New Testament passage is going to be taking us through a series of readings from 1st and 2nd Timothy. 1st and 2nd Timothy are a part of what we refer to as pastoral epistles or pastoral letters. In other words, Paul is writing to his young lieutenant, Timothy, or my young apprentice. I'm sorry, Star Wars quote. Uh, His young lieutenant, Timothy, who has been left in charge of the church that is in Ephesus. So these letters deal with ordering the life of the local congregation in a prosperous city of the Roman Empire. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 2 that we just heard read this morning has some terrific instruction and doctrine in it. We're urged to pray for our rulers, and this was written probably when Nero was the uh, emperor of the Roman Empire, so whatever you think of the current occupant of any administration in the White House, they're not Nero, so we should pray for them, all right? We're told that God (laughs) desires everyone to be saved. That's good news. We're told that Jesus is the one and only mediator between a holy God and sinful humanity, that's gospel. We're told not to quarrel and to dress modestly and not ostentatiously. And I think it was St. John Chrysostom who said, do not buy your costly apparel, rob the poor. Good stuff. Great stuff that needs to be expounded upon, but we can't hear a word of it. (laughs) Not a word because of the difficult verses, even the alarming verses that came at the end of the chapter. Let a woman learn quietly and with all submissiveness. Ooh, Rabbi Paul, what are you talking about? I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. We haven't read this here, obviously. It's not working. Uh, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor yet she will be saved through childbearing. Well, that makes perfect sense. (laughs) If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So what are we going to do with this problematic passage? And I'll tell you what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to ignore it. How are we going to deal with God's word to us in 1 Timothy chapter 2? Well, first of all, you need to know we can't do it in a mere twenty-minute homily, so this is going to take a little bit longer than usual. Now, one of the ways of handling this passage is kind of what I referred to is that when I said I'm not going to ignore it. We could, we could potentially just dodge it. We could, I could just preach something else. And why would I want to do that? Well, because this is offensive language to our modern sensibilities, and quite frankly, uh, as Christians living in the twenty-first century, we're a little embarrassed by it. It seems to reinforce the conventional secular wisdom that Christianity is inherently misogynistic and that it is the historical root of the war on women. So let's just pretend it isn't there. But for traditional Christians, this really isn't an option because we believe that this passage that we just read is included in the canon of Scripture. It is God's authoritative self-revelation. Therefore, we cannot ignore this text into oblivion. that would just be cowardly anyway. And if we don't avoid this text altogether, we might be tempted to say something like this. Well, of course, that was just their culture. That's just their culture. Poor old Rabbi Paul is so bound by his cultural limitations and expectations that he can't help but perpetuate the patriarch, the patriarchy, trademark, the patriarchy. But here are the problems with that kind of reasoning. First of all, as we're going to see, St. Paul actually is cutting against the grain of Greek and Jewish culture in the first century. So the assertion that Paul is hopelessly mired in his culture is just factually incorrect from the get-go. Secondly, we can't use this argument, the that's their culture argument, because Paul bases his admonition on the order of creation, not as a concession to culture. For Adam, Paul writes, was formed first, then Eve. That seems to be his basis for his admonition. But there's an even more problematic component of the that's just their culture objection. And here it is. It means that we ourselves, when we say, well, that's just their culture, it means that we ourselves have believed the myth of progress. We are, in fact, by saying that, engaging in chronological snobbery. Now, what is chronological snobbery? Well, it is the logical fallacy, as J.I. Packer has said, which maintains the newer is the truer, only what is recent is decent, every shift of ground is a step forward, and every latest word must be held as the last word on its subject. That's just a logical fallacy. Chronological snobbery, you see, assumes, this is the assumption, there's no argument needed for this. Chronological snobbery assumes that Paul's cultural was inherently wrong because it had the misfortune, misfortune of coming before our culture. It came before us. And by that mere fact, and by the mere fact that we live 20 centuries later, we live in a more enlightened and correct age. And of course, this fails a, a really important test to any kind of assertion. It's this test. Says who? Says who? By what criteria are we saying that our culture is inherently better? What what external fixed reference point are we judging cultures by? We just never even mention that. We simply assume it, and everyone goes along with that. You see, brothers and sisters, we need to realize that the sword of the cultural argument can cut both ways. Maybe the problem is that we can't hear God's Word in this passage because of our culture. Maybe it's our culture that is deficient. Not that Paul is in error because of his culture. But ultimately, the problem of arguing that this passage doesn't apply to us because it is a mere product or an artifact of first century Hellenistic or Jewish culture is that we will start doing this with every uncomfortable passage of Scripture every passage that challenges the idols of our culture. And before you know it, we have excused ourselves from every text that would call us to live differently from the secular culture around us. So let's have the courage this morning, brothers and sisters, to to try to work through this passage and still remain under the authority of God's Word. So how are we going to do that? Well, in in order to do this, the first step is that is is just to understand the text for what it is. Thomas Soden, the late Thomas Soden, very influential uh theologian and, and Bible uh teacher, in my life anyway, says of these verses. He says here that we are still speaking, okay, this is about first Timothy, First Timothy uh chapter two, verses eleven and following. We are still speaking of proper instruction for public worship. The general subject in this passage is public prayer, prayer discussed in terms of the two genders, male and female. So th- th- this is a passage instructing Timothy on he, how he is to order the worship and teaching life of the church in the city of Ephesus. So that's, that's the context. So the first thing about Christian worship here in this passage that we need to recognize that actually is it what we thought we heard listen is that women are permitted to be learners yeah <laughs> we're permitted they're permitted it says this listen let a woman learn quietly and with all submissiveness Now that statement indicates that Paul is encouraging Timothy to go against, to cut against the grain of the Jewish and Hellenistic culture of his day by allowing women to be equally learners as are men. We didn't hear it that way, did we? In fact, the prominence of women in the early Christian church was one of the things that its critics condemned. Like Celsus, the great critic of early Christianity, he despised Christianity because it appealed to, in his words, slaves, women, and little children. And that was his reason not to believe it. In first century Judaism, women were not allowed to read the Torah, and they were confined to the outer court of the temple. Greek women were even more limited in their access to public learning. Paul is not submitting to the cultural expectations of his day. He is defying the cultural expectations of his day. Let a woman learn. But now Paul says women just like men are to be learners and learning. Listen, and we didn't like this part of the the verse with uh, learning with quietly and with all submission. Ooh, ooh, don't like that. Well, listen, that's not the way that just that that is not it is not just how women are to approach scripture It is the way that all of us, all disciples come before the word of God. We are called to quietness and to full submission when receiving instruction from the scriptures. The attitude of submission is not just for women, but for men, too. It's just Paul's just saying women should learn exactly like men learn when the word of God is being taught with quietness, and with all submission to God's Word. What could be wrong with that? Well, that's that's a relief. Whew. I thought we were in deep weeds there for a minute. Oh, wait a second. It gets worse. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Well, how are we to understand this? Well, here's what I want to suggest to us. And by the way, I'm going to take a quick, like, 30 second uh, sound bite here to explain how we interpret Scripture in general. First of all, we use the Reformation technique, and it's before the Reformation too, but we interpret Scripture with other Scripture. How about that? We interpret Scripture by Scripture. The second way we do it is we go to the mainstream, what we call the great. Tradition, what is the main current of Christian teaching? What has been believed always, everywhere, and by all? All. Quod simper, uh, quod omnibus, uh, creditum est. What's been believed everywhere and always by all? So that's the great tradition. We use the, the tradition of the church. And the third way is that we use the stuff that God put between our ears. All right? That's the reason. So Scripture is the primary way we interpret Scripture. We use the great tradition to fill in the blanks, and then we also em- employ reason. But Scripture is always preeminent. So let's use that, that Reformation mandate of interpreting Scripture by Scripture. And we, if we do that, we know, listen, that we cannot absolutize, absolutize this text. In other words, we can't say, all right, women are never allowed to teach, why can't we do that? Because just in just right, like the next two uh, books over, the next pastoral epistle after 2 Timothy, in that pass in that book, Paul gives specific instructions that women should teach. They're told they should teach. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Titus 2, 3 and 4. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Good advice. They are to teach what is good. Well, now, wait a second. I thought he said they weren't supposed to teach. So we can't absolutize this. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. And yes, we admit it. We are guilty as charged. Christians think that women should love their husbands and children. Again, using scripture to illuminate scripture, we know from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18, that Priscilla, which was a girl's name even then, along with her husband Aquila, served as a teacher even of the learned Apollos, a man. Acts chapter 18 verse 26, Apollos began to preach bold or speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, and by the way, she's always mentioned first, But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Who's doing the teaching here? It's Priscilla and Aquila. Hmm. And as far as remaining quiet in church, as far as that statement goes, we cannot absolutize uh, absolutize that point either because Paul himself gives instructions for how women were to publicly pray and prophesy in the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5. And by the way, public prayer and prophecy are both actions that require speaking, which means you're not being quiet. So the issue seems to be how women are to exercise teaching authority, not if they are to exercise teaching authority. And here the text is actually very helpful. This is kind of didactic, I know, but I think it's interesting. The phrase, when Paul says they're not allowed to exercise authority in that exercise authority over man part, that's based on a Greek word that is found nowhere else in the entire New Testament. It's found only here. So in order to understand it, we have to go to Greek texts outside of the New Testament to get its meaning. And in those texts, it means this. It means to domineer, to dominate, and to usurp authority. To domineer and dominate and to usurp, usurp authority. And the reason that this seems to be a particular problem for the church in Ephesus is that that city was home to the great temple of Artemis. You remember that, that riot in uh, the book of Acts where uh, Paul and his traveling companions are preaching Jesus and it goes against the, uh, against it hurts the idol business there because they have idols to the, to the goddess Artemis and there's a riot. and for two hours they shouted, "Great is Artemis of the, of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So there was a great temple of Artemis there, the goddess Artemis was served in that temple by an all-female priesthood, and men were excluded from its core practices. So Paul is telling Timothy to remind the women in Ephesus in worship that this is not like the worship of the pagan goddess Artemis. Rather, they are worshipers and learners alongside of men in the Christian community not to dominate or domineer over the Christian community. Well, that's all helpful. And I think that's wonderful. And it really does kind of illuminate all this. But if you want to know the key that unlocks the reading of this whole passage, it is the strangest verse of all. Here it is, it's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Yet she, and it does say, it does say women, yet women, it says, yet she will be saved. And there's a definite article there in the Greek through the childbearing. She shall be saved through the childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness and self with self-control. The woman, she is saved by childbearing? What does that... I mean, I, I thought all people were saved by Jesus, not by childbearing. Where in all of Scripture could we possibly find a woman being saved through childbearing? I don't know. Maybe this giant picture of Mary on the wall could give us a hint. You see, those who read this passage through the lens of the great tradition see this as a reference to the Virgin Mary, and thus everything that comes before it also should be read through the lens of the Blessed Virgin Mary as well. Mary herself is saved through childbearing because she gives birth to the Savior. Yes, the Savior. I don't know what I'd do without you, Ty. (laughs) Yes, she is saved through the childbearing. One of the reasons that we as theologically conservative Protestants sometimes sideline and diminish women in the ministry of the church is because we took out our magic eraser and erased Mary from the Bible. We have refused to delve into God's call of the woman Mary in the restoration of the human race. This is powerful. That's why we needed to hear, I changed the gospel reading to the Annunciation passage. That's why we needed to hear that passage from Luke chapter one this morning as the gospel text. The Annunciation account clearly demonstrates God's exalted place for women in his plan of salvation. The phrase that Gabriel uses when he, some of y'all have heard me teach this and I'm shocked that some of you have heard me teach it and then they never heard it. So listen, all right? The phrase Gabriel greets Mary with, the Lord is with you, is used only one time in the New Testament, and it is used here in Luke chapter 1, and it is used for Mary. Now that phrase, on the other hand, has a long tradition in the Old Testament where it points to receiving a call. Okay, this phrase points to receiving a call from God and supernatural empowerment To execute that call. It is a phrase uttered to people who are key players in salvation history. Moses hears it in Exodus chapter 3 verse 12. Gideon hears it in Judges chapter 6 verse 12. Jeremiah hears it in Jeremiah 1 verse verse 8. So right away by that Old Testament context, we know that Mary is a key human player in salvation history. That's how you get mentioned a lot of times in the Old Testament by being a key player in salvation history. Mary responds to the angel that she is the Lord's servant. I am the Lord's servant. This is the same title that the prophets of the Old Testament embraced, the servant of the Lord. Therefore, Mary is a prophet, and her oracle is the Word made flesh. Wow. Wait a second. (sighs) Early Christians equated the role of Mary with that of the Bible itself. She is the page on which the pure Word of God has been written. Isn't that cool? So Mary is called, ordained, and set apart by God to a unique office that, guess what? No man could ever hold. Oops. Oops. She, we're going to go right over the brink here. Ready for this? She is the ultimate human minister of divine grace because through her calling and obedience comes the Savior of the world. If you don't have Mary, you don't get Jesus. Mary, in Christian tradition, is called the New Eve, the New Eve. Now, I want us to notice something here. The passage from Luke chapter 1 is almost a point-by-point reversal of the fall of humanity narrated in Genesis chapter 3. Again, some of you have heard it and remember this, and some of you have heard it, and you don't remember a word I'm saying. But this is really amazing. If we were to look at Luke chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 3, this is what we would see. In Genesis chapter, one, uh, chapter 3, Eve the woman is approached by a fallen angel. In Luke chapter 1, Mary is greeted by the holy angel, Gabriel, point by point. In Genesis, Eve believes the serpent's lies, and she chooses her own will. In Luke, Mary believes the good news brought by Gabriel, and what does she say? Let it be done to me as the Lord has said. She chooses God's will. That sounds exactly like a reversal. Eve's disobedience in Genesis leads her to flee from the presence of God. Adam and Eve engaged in the first game of hide-and-seek in the garden. I don't think they thought that through. It's God. He knows where you are. He wants you to think about where you are. Eve's disobedience leads her to flee from the presence of God. Mary's obedience causes her to be overshadowed by the presence of God in exactly the way God's glory overshadowed the Mount of Transfiguration. In Genesis, Eve's rebellion gave birth to death and the curse. In Luke's gospel, Mary's obedience defeated the curse and gave birth to the conqueror of death. That just makes sh- chills go down my spine. Eve's disobedience began the destruction of the old creation. Mary's obedience is the beginning of a new creation. Praise God. So what are the implications of this? As Eve was the archetype of fallen womanhood, Mary is the archetype of true redeemed womanhood. And as such, she directly speaks to the question of women in ministry and women with authority. If we will allow Mary back into the canon of Scripture, if we will heed the voice of the early church, certain truths become undeniable. And the first truth is this. God exalts the woman who offers herself in sacrificial obedience, Speaking of herself, Mary says that God has exalted those of humble estate. Mary perceives her call as being exalted. Isn't that good news? The second thing is that Mary reveals that God uses and blesses the woman who submits to God's word in her life. Verse 38, chapter 1 of Luke, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then later on, we didn't read this part, but when she visits her cousin Elizabeth, Elizabeth says of Mary, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what what was spoken to her from the Lord. God uses the and blesses the woman who submits to the Word of God in her life. And the third thing is this, and I think this directly pertains to the question at hand that is presented by 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and following. Mary shows us that God employs women for called, set-apart gospel ministry. Indeed, Mary's ministry is the most important ministry ever offered by any human person other than that of her son. Her ministry is essential, and here's a a word that we need to embrace. It is essential and complementary. It's not identical. It's complementary. Mary's ministry is complementary. Essential and complementary to the priestly ministry of Christ because it is Mary's little lamb that is slain. To take away the sins of the world. This is something that is beautiful about the Christian faith. Is it's here? Here's the thing that happens when um, in a secular culture, when there is no um, governing authority that keeps us from devouring one another, other than our rights language. In the the economy of God's kingdom, when we are under the lordship of Jesus Christ, there's this beautiful diversity of gifts. In the the secular culture, you are are reduced to egalitarianism in its most stripped-down form. We're just going to cut everybody off at the same level. But in God's economy, everything is always being elevated and exalted to another, you know, and we, with all with unveiled faces, are being transformed from one degree of glory to another as we look upon Christ. That is God's desire for His human creation and indeed for all of His creation, not to be leveled out in some gray uh, communist era. Uh, you, you, young people, don't know what I'm talking about. But the, the, the gray apartment buildings, of I've seen them, I've been in them, of the old communist bloc countries, where it was just one equally drab gray apartment after another. That was the kind of egalitarianism that finally got expressed. God wants things to be beautiful and colorful and different and exciting and always always uh, making those of us who encounter God's goodness in this economy of of God's great abundance to be going, wow, that's amazing, that's beautiful, I never saw anything like that before. It just gets better and better. So, complementarianism is a good thing. It is, so Mary's ministry is the most important, most exalted ministry ever em, em, performed by a human other than her son. And this most exalted ministry, now you need to hear this, was not a ministry of headship. How about that? That opens up a whole other discussion, but it's just interesting to me that that wasn't a ministry of headship. So here's my prayer for the church. May God reignite our biblical imaginations to read the Word regarding the ministry of women through the lens of Mary to see how women are called and set apart like Mary, how they robustly minister in God's church like Mary. So instead of just reading that passage by itself in isolation from every other scripture that Paul himself ever wrote, And from the teaching tradition, the apostolic authority of the church, instead of doing that, why don't we just read it with all that other stuff included? We might be surprised at what God might want to do with women in our church today. Or how about this? What God might want to do to a woman sitting in this church right now. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at Christchurchws.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts.